this morning I would like for you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4. I'd like to say what an honor and a privilege once again to be with you, finally to be here regularly with you, excited about that. Um, my family, who looks very absent to you, are very absent. You know, they're staying in Texas temporarily trying to sell the house and, and working through all that. We appreciate your grace in that time and, and your prayers, certainly. So I hope that they can be with us as soon as possible, and, and we look forward to that, and they look forward to that. And, um, no reflection on their desire to be here other than we have some logistical things we're still working on. So pray for us. Pray for me as I'm... I'm you know, here, I'm living with my parents, you know, temporarily, which, you know, some of you as a grown adult thinking going back to your parents' house, that's, that's a work of faith. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, no, I say that I love my parents and I'm glad they're here with us this morning. Brother Ben does have a sense of humor. You found John chapter four. I would like for you to look for verse number one. And when you find it, if you would stand in honor of God's word. John chapter 4, verse number 1 reads this way. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, an opportunity to come to you, to look to Scripture, to find the, the highest standard of example that we could follow by looking at you. I pray that as we see your life and your actions, Lord, that we would mimic it, that we would we would reflect it, that we would be part of it, Lord, that we would seek to do all we could to be just like you in our lives. And Lord, I believe that the way we do that is by knowing you first and foremost as Savior. I pray that today, Lord, that we would invest in this. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We, we come to this passage, and it's interesting to me. It's one of the, one of the passages that speaks so, so powerfully to me throughout the course of my life and ministry because I, I see something that's happening here that is unfolding, and there's some subtle pieces that I want to talk about today and some, some, some little pieces that I hope that we will embrace together because I want to set the standard by saying that, that this, this book will be our guiding light. It will be everything to us. Where we don't agree with it, we will ask ourselves to change and not for it to bend to us. Amen? That will be the gold standard. And when we talk about the gold standard, within the gold standard, we will look to Jesus. Because it, it is my purpose in life to, first and foremost, to know the conduct of Christ, to understand his character, and then model them in my own life, and that that should be the same for everybody that comes to church here. And so knowing Christ, his character and his conduct, and then modeling it, if we can do that, everything else will come together. Amen? So look at verse number one with me. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew 
the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Now, right off the, off the, the page here, we see this interesting thing is happening. Jesus' public ministry had started. He has gathered to himself a fistful of people who follow him. And in doing so, something really unique begins to happen. John, who was the forerunner, had been proclaiming Jesus and had been telling the world about this, this Messiah to come. And in doing so, he is, he is baptizing people for repentance of their sins. And he is doing this task, but all of a sudden, a shift changes. And all of a sudden, it's Jesus is taking center stage, and the work that he's doing is running out past what John was doing. And it should be that way, shouldn't it? That whatever Jesus is doing ought to be bigger than what we are trying to accomplish ourselves. And it's happening right here in front of us, and sometimes we see this subtly, and we just skip right over it because it just sounds like the passing of time. But I, I hope that you see this is important because it, there's something also that subtly creeps into verse number two. It says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. And you begin to look at something with me. Did Jesus have trouble delegating responsibility to people that followed him? Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus does not have trouble delegating authority. Good leaders don't have trouble delegating authority because they know that the way that, the, that any goal is accomplished is by empowering people to do a task. They're making disciples and baptizing people. Let me remind you, Jesus has not yet died on the cross or been raised from the dead at this part of the narrative. So they're just bringing people to follow a Jesus that is the teacher par excellence. He is the one who's in charge of the whole situation, and he's giving them something to see, and they are following him already. Imagine how much more intense it should be for us who know of his death, burial, and resurrection that we should follow him more devoutly because we know what he has come to do and what he has already done. They don't even have that yet, and yet they're already growing. They're already consuming the world around them with regard to discipleship and baptism, and they are bringing people into their number, and that's something for us to behold. We don't even get to the place where we see of, of the greatest things that Jesus will do. This is chapter 4 of the gospel according to John. Well, I love verse number 3 because it gives us something to look at, something to consider. It says, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And you begin to see Jesus is, is doing something that most of us can't, can't wrap our head around. He is traveling by foot to accomplish his task. And I love the Gospel of John, and one of my professors taught this and just ingrained it in us to understand this when I was in seminary. John is full of travel language. Jesus is always coming and going from somewhere to somewhere, somewhere else. And typically the picture is he's come from heaven. He's headed to the cross, and he's going back to heaven, and it's this big picture of travel language. Well, that being said, Jesus, in the course of his travels, is not missing anywhere. He's going everywhere that he can go. And as a result, he's coming up on verse number four where it's going to be a shift for something that we're not comfortable with because he's going to go to a place that most people will tell you to stay away from. Have you ever been told to stay away from a place? I mean, as a kid... The boundaries are small, aren't they? Stay out of the street. Don't play in the road, right? Don't go there, right? As a little bit older kid, they're like, don't go to that side of town. And as a greater adult, they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't go to that country on that mission trip because it's pretty dangerous there. And we have these places where people are warning us all the time. They're like, this is not safe. But Jesus, in his travels, we get to verse number four, it says, 
and he had to pass through Samaria. In some translations, it says needed to pass through Samaria. And if I have ever been compelled to understand my Savior in a way that I needed to know him deeper, that I need to know that one thing is true, that he needs to be there, that he, he had to go there, that it was imperative for him. Some of you have got up this morning and you thought to yourself, man, I'm going to church today. But tell me the truth. Sometimes when we get up, we say to ourselves, but maybe we don't have to go today. I hope that's not true. Sometimes we get up and we say, there'll be another Sunday in a week. And we'll feel that way about certain things. Or we'll say that about the grocery store, won't we? We're out of milk, but we can wait a day or two. Or maybe it's Walgreens that's calling. And you're like, but I got to go get that medicine. I need to go do it. But maybe, maybe you got a day left so I can put it off. This is not the picture of Jesus in this passage when he's headed here. He has to go there. He needs to go there. He's going there right now. You know, we understand that language too, don't we? Just like the student that hears the second bell when they're passing through the hallways knows they need to be in class, but they're not there, so they're making a beeline. But a little more important, because what Jesus is doing is so much bigger than that. He's not just needing or having to go to a place because it's on his schedule. He has an appointment in front of him an appointment that will change the lives of the people around him, starting with one person. Did you hear what I just said? He's going to change the lives of all the people around this community by having an appointment with one person. And you, in your life, might need to be one of those disciples that teaches people about Jesus one person at a time that will change the whole landscape of the community around you. We always have these great big pictures of all the things we'd like to accomplish, it starts with one person and one conversation and, and one prayer. And it starts so simply. Jesus does, he models it for us here. We get to verse number five, understanding that he, that he had to pass through Samaria. And he says, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. What in the world? Do you think to yourself, if you're not a student of Old Testament scripture, you know, we had a, a wonderful Sunday school lesson. I, I sat in on one of the classes. Just so you're aware, I intend to pop into Sunday school classes and just sit through a different one every week for so many weeks until I've seen most or all of them. So if I'm in your class, don't be intimidated. I really enjoyed it this morning. Talking about the Old Testament, and they talked about the, the importance of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I will tell you that oftentimes people will come to me and they'll talk about the New Testament and they'll, they'll be in love with it. But I will tell you that having the New Testament is having a payload. If you don't have the Old Testament to, to drag it forward, you don't have the engine to get you where you're going because you don't have any reason or understanding of why you need the New Testament. The Old Testament is the truck that brings the trailer, that brings the, the, the treasure to us. If we don't have the Old Testament, we don't understand why we have it. When he begins to unpack these verses, it, we begin to see it, that he's talking about an Old Testament situation where a piece of land that has been around in the scriptures has been part of the story of the biblical narrative forever, or at least that's our, our language because it's as long as we can remember. And it tells me a story for us to, to think about as, as far as application goes for our own lives. And here's a question you have to ask yourself. Is there anywhere that you overlook in your community because it's just been there always? 
anywhere that you just drive right by it all the time or walk right past it and you don't think about the importance of the, the, the dynamic interaction you might have with the person that's, that's living there that you don't know, but you, you've just always seen that as part of your community? Yeah. The world has changed so much in the time that I've lived that we have gone from a place where we know people in, on the internet and we know people at church and oftentimes we don't always know our neighbors or our friends or people just surrounding us. We, we don't really know them. We have secluded ourselves away to the glow of our televisions, our sports teams, and our internet instead of knowing the people around us. And as a result, we pass right by places like this and we don't even think about the people living there. And I'm gonna challenge you today to start looking at your neighbors and the people in your community and the places that you've gone all your life and start having intentional prayer and intentional conversations to know those people, to interact with them, to share with them your faith, because it could change the landscape of the world around you. But you see this picture, don't you? It's just another place. Well, just another place where somebody lives that did never hear the gospel, that died and went to, to hell. It doesn't sound like something that I want to be a part of. How about you? Instead, what I'd rather say is, this is just another place that I passed by a bunch of times, but I stopped today, and I invited them. First to know me, then to know my Savior, and then to my church in that order. Because your personal relationship with your personal Savior and then to your family of believers is the right order. More to come on that. We begin to see this picture as it unfolds. This piece of land that has been sold and purchased, verse number six says, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And I love this. I love this picture of scripture. We, we see this, this story is unfolding for us. And we're like, Jesus is all God. But he's all man too. He shows us his limitations right here in scripture. Wearied. I, I like the, the way that the New Testament does this. It's actually very difficult for us to wrap our heads around because we don't talk in that language, do we, about the sixth hour? I mean, if you got on the phone and somebody said to you, well, I need to go over to the doctor about the 10th hour of the day, people would be like, I, I was in a, a doctor's office at some point and they asked for my date to make sure I was who I said I was and I told them I was born in the 1900s. And they said, you didn't have to say it that way. I said, well... I'm stressing the importance that I'm getting old. 1978, and some of you are like, that's not old. Right? You didn't have to say it like that. Next time you go to the doctor and you say, I was born in the 1900s, and they're going to look at you like, uh-huh. Well, we see this, this unfolding here, and it's the sixth hour, which the New Testament's kind of it's kind of fluid here. It's a little ambiguous about this. Literally, it's talking about, you know, if you want to find a, a pinpoint, it's about the middle of the day. You have the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour, the morning, noontime, and, and the evening. And this is, this is a generalization you see pop up in Scripture from time to time. When you talk about nighttime, there's watches. Depending on the passages you look at in the Old Testament, it might be three, it might be two. It makes it a little hard for us to nail it down, but basically what you know is that by about the middle of the day, Jesus is war slick. You ever been there? You ever been to the middle of the day and you thought, I still have half of this to go and I'm, I'm just wore out? Jesus is showing his humanity here. 
And it tells us that he's doing it. But I want you to see something that's really, really important to me. If this is indeed the middle of the day, the appointment that's about to come that's so important and it's going to change the world around him, around her, happens right in the middle of what would be a typical day. Do you have an excuse to wait to talk about your faith or to invite somebody to church or to build a relationship with somebody because it's not that night of the week that I do that with the church? He's doing this in the middle of the day. He's doing this as he goes. He's doing this even when he's tired. What's our excuse? I guarantee there are many. I've never been somewhere where somebody can't give me a good excuse. But we see the picture here that Jesus is in the middle of the day and morning, noon, and night, he's about to work. It shifts though, doesn't it? And where I want to spend some more time is verses 7 through 10. It says, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And I don't, you know, this isn't deep theology here. Sounds to me like Jesus is thirsty, amen? Let me ask you a question. What simple thing is Jesus asked of you? Something easy for you to do. Would not be hard at all that he's leaned in and he's asked you to do something simple that you could do easily for him. What is it? What in the whole world could he be asking of you to do that would be just as simple as drawing water from a well and giving a man something to drink? That's how he starts his relationship with this woman in a strange place that he had to go through in the middle of the day when he was tired. He just leans in and asks her for something simple. And I think that there's so many times when I've come to, to pictures of the stories of the scriptures that Jesus is just showing us that we start out by the simple interaction, the common thing, the easy to do. Take one step and then another. Come a little further. Let's break this down into pieces. Let's not try to get into the deep end of the swimming pool all at once. We don't teach kids to tie their shoes that way. We don't teach them to swim in swimming pools that way. We first get our feet wet, right? No, not when you're tying shoes. Some of you are with me. If you get your feet wet while you're tying shoes, you're doing it wrong. I'm not going to host a clinic, but we see the picture here that we break things down into small steps. Jesus has just got this basic introduction where he just looks at this woman and he says, give me a drink. Now, we could talk and we could wax eloquently, and many people have done so in the course of their exposition of this passage about how she's coming to the well at a strange time and how it means something about who she is. And I think that some of you who have studied the scriptures enough know that, and some of you who haven't studied enough don't care about that, so we're not going to talk about it. I want to talk about the things that stand on the page that are just super, super vibrant. Verse 8 says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He wants a simple thing from her, and his entourage, I'll sometimes refer to the disciples this way, as this group of guys that, that think he's really cool, want to follow him, and this is an amazing thing. They are his fan club until the cross, in my opinion. And some of them prove that they're not really that deep into it. But they have left him to go buy food. 
And if you want to know a, a biblical truth that you need to hear this morning and something that you need to take home, and that is Jesus does not need you to do what he's about to do. His disciples had gone. They're off doing what they think is important. What things do we get tangled up in that we think are important? That maybe aren't so important because the people around us perish. The people around us are suffering and they're hopeless and they're helpless and they're lost and they're, and they're moving through a world constantly wondering if anyone cares. And we're busy making sure we got groceries for the team. Jesus will do this ministry with or without us. He will do it and is doing it. The beautiful thing is that he has invited us into this work to be a part of it. So here's what I'm going to ask of you is that when we start looking at the character of Christ and we start looking at the conduct of him and we start mirroring it and mimicking it in our own life, that where we want to be, whenever we're doing anything, is we want to be where Jesus would be. Jesus is at this moment where he is at a place, even though he's tired, even though it's the middle of the day, even though it's a strange location, and that's where he is. And his disciples aren't with him. Shock of shocks. Well, the, the Samaritan woman, she says it in verse number nine, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman. And she just lays it all out there. You don't belong here. We don't belong together. You shouldn't even be talking to me. Can you think of anything in the world that you live in that divides people like this? I can't. I can think of lots of things. The divisions that exist between us, I can think of lots and lots of things in the world that divide us, that keep us from being where we're supposed to be, when we're supposed to be there, with whom we're supposed to be, because there are divisions that exist that the culture around us tells us we should embrace. And it's nothing further from the truth. There is nothing further from the truth that says that we should not be with somebody that's different than us not when it comes to teaching them or sharing our faith or being about the, the, the loving action of, of being a follower of Christ, looks like. But we have bought in and believed, and I just believe this about American culture, so I believe it about here. There are divisions that exist that should not. That we have chosen all the wrong things to argue about. And we have been convinced that they're Okay so much so that we would let people die without hope, that we would let them perish without knowing our Savior, that we would let our divisions keep us from doing the one thing he's asked of us, which is to go and make disciples. He didn't say, except for in the part of town that you don't like or the place that you've always been. I, I look to the scripture and I am, I am convinced that she knows what the culture expects. You know what's going to change the world in Beggs, Oklahoma? When the people of Crossroads Church decide that they don't care about any of those divisions. They care about Jesus, 
They follow him. And if he tells them to go into a place, we're going to a place. And if it makes people uncomfortable, know that it made people uncomfortable when Jesus did it. And that's part of the reason he changed the world. A small part, but part nonetheless. We, we get to this picture. And I ask you this question. Because she just, she just echoes it right back to him. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan? She's like, you're different than me. But you want something super simple. But I'm different than you. How could I possibly be in the middle of this conversation? Wouldn't it be something if everybody around us knew that this is a place where that didn't matter? You need something super simple? We can do it. We will do it. Wouldn't that be radical? And you say to yourself, well, what's our motivation for doing that, Brother Ben? That we know the conduct and the character of Christ and that we model his conduct and his character. He does it, so we should do it. Amen? As one prominent preacher says, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. It's going to be uncomfortable at first. It's going to be uncomfortable going into uncomfortable places at first. I'll never forget, you know, years and years ago and all the different Baptist programs that I have encountered in my life that have taught us to get out and go. You know, the one thing that, that's shrinking and, and is terrifyingly diminishing in Baptist life across the land? Evangelism. If that remains the trend, then the churches will continue to decline and the, and the growth of the church will die. And, and as a result, we will be what was. You know, I recently heard a guy say this and I thought, man, that's so true. Uh, how many of you are familiar with San Antonio, Texas, the Alamo? The Alamo started out as a mission. Everyone say the Alamo started out as a mission. And then it became a church. Now say, and then it became a church. Then it turned into a battleground. I'm losing you. Stay with me. The fourth one, be strong on this one. Are you ready? And now it's a museum. So will every church be in America if we don't learn to be missional, if we don't learn to be a church and we stop worrying about the divisions that divide us. If we want to become museums, then we'll just keep doing what we've been doing. It's not enough. It wasn't enough for Jesus. I mean, next week we're going to pick up at verse number 11 and we're going to learn a, bit, a little bit more, but before I get there, verse 10 is just waiting and we have to look at it, amen? So turn with me to verse 10. It says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew. Assume that everyone that you don't know is saved is lost. Assume it. You've always been told that making assumptions is bad. In this case, I think it's dead on right. Assume they're lost until you know they're saved, and that way when you go to them, you can always wonder that if they know who Jesus is enough that you'll be willing to talk to them about Jesus. Because if you assume that they're saved, then you'll be doing the wrong thing. Because then you will never try to find out if they need to know him or not. Right? I mean, 
Isn't it powerful? Jesus looks at her and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. I want to look at people sometimes and say, if only you knew what I knew. And then we say, what does that mean? I'll say, if only you knew what I knew about Jesus, Jesus who saw me in my state of sin and, and said to me, I don't care about that the way you care about that. I can pay for that. I can pay for that always. His pockets are deep when it comes to this. He doesn't run out of resource. You can't do a thing that can push you outside of his, outside of his reach. And, and if you knew what I knew, you'd know I can bring all that with me to him and he will just gladly pay for it. I recently had a conversation with a young man who was talking to me about his broken home and his broken life. And, and he said, well, what about, what about the relationship I have with my parents? I mean, the Bible says we're supposed to honor our mother and father. He says, but what if your parents aren't good? And I looked at him and I said, well, the Bible says we should honor them, so you should do your best to honor them. He goes, even if they haven't been good to me? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, what do you mean by that? And I was like, what I mean by that is, is that you, by honoring them, have a witness and a testimony in their life about how Jesus has changed you, and your prayer and hope is that they will be redeemed at some point and saved. And he says, but what about all the bad stuff they ever did? And I looked at him and I said, our hope is, is that when they get redeemed, we will know that that has been paid for because God, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus at the cross to pay for it. Jesus wants to give you this living water. The young man looked at me and shook his head. He goes, I guess that's right. I don't say, no, you know that's right. Some people in your life have probably done some horrible things to you. But our hope is that they'll become redeemed. And that we can celebrate their redemption. It does not excuse all they've ever done, but the forgiveness that they need doesn't come from you. It comes from God. That part where you have to offer them forgiveness comes later but I guarantee that part where you get to forgive them is a whole lot different and a whole lot easier over time if they come to Jesus first. You see, most people think that they could back their, their broken relationships into forgiveness from us first and then from God second, and I'd suggest that's out of order. That's what's happening in this passage. She's looking at Jesus and saying, we don't mesh, we are not compatible. And Jesus is like, oh, but we are. I have every bit of compatibility that you need with regard to understanding the gift of God. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. Man, whenever I look at people and I say, if only you knew what I knew, I could teach you about hope and I could teach you about forgiveness. I could teach you about acceptance. I could teach you about a loving family that's beyond the walls of your home. I could teach you about so much with regard to knowing this. And it's amazing to me how many people, having heard that, would say, I just, I'm not sure. How about you today? Are you sure? Do you know this Jesus? If you knew him, he would give you a drink of living water, everlasting water, the gift of God before you. Do you know him today? I, the invitation in a moment will be simple. For those of you that do not know Jesus and, and have never known him, you see this picture and you need to ask yourself this question. Do I know him? And if the answer is no, then you have an opportunity to come and talk to me and we'll talk about knowing him. But the invitation is doublefold. 
because for many people in here would say you already know him. And I'm going to challenge you right here on the line, and I'm going to ask a real question. If you know this Jesus, and you understand what gift he has of God, do you model his character and his conduct? Are you in places that make you uncomfortable? Are you there when you're tired? Are you there? Instead of worrying about the things that you worry about? Because the invitation is for you to also be right with him in this regard. Because I think that if we knew him, we would go and be about the work. And we would be about it all the time. And this living water, it would run right through this community to every single person who needs it. Leaving only those who would refuse it knowing its whole truth. Man, if that's our goal, let that be our goal. That everybody in this community would have an opportunity to respond to the full complement of the gospel or reject it, and the only thing that would remain are those who reject it knowing the full complement of it. And when we get to that goal, then let's spread out because we are surrounded by a number of zip codes that also need that. What do you think he means when he says to the ends of the earth? You take the message right here first, and then you take the message past that and past that until you get to the end. Literally to the end of the map. I'm going to tell you this much. Our government is all about pouring money into NASA or had been over the course of my life. I think if they found aliens on another planet, I'd want to go tell them about Jesus too. Because I believe the book. The book says everyone. How about you? Do you know him today? We're going to stand. I'm going to invite um, Justin to come and we're going to stand. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to this. First, for those who need to know Jesus, who don't know him. And then second, for those of you that already know him, that you would have a deep commitment to know his character, know his conduct, and model it. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your house, an opportunity to hear from Scripture, an opportunity to see, see a passage maybe with fresh eyes that we might be missional, that we might be fully submitted to you, that we might know you in a way that the world around us knows that we know you, that we couldn't contain it or couldn't hide it. Lord, I ask this morning that we would respond courageously to you, giving our full heart and our full life to you, that that work might take us into uncomfortable places, that it might push us to places when we're tired, but that we might break down the barriers that divide us for the purpose of being about you and you alone. We ask for this in Jesus' name.